Hi listener, this is From My Geology to Unity, a spiritual journey where we let go of ideological doctrine and ego in favour of meaning, purpose and unity as a whole. Right, so today I'm doing the sixth episode of reviewing and reading the Red Book of C.G. Jung. And like usual, it's more like just saying whatever comes to me as I read it, then it is a review, but that is technically reviewing. So, yeah. So, you know, you may not be having the best day. In these times, that's very much understandable. But, catalyst in your life is provided by source to help you grow. I, I realized that about my life and we can freak out or we can take a step back and ask what, what can we learn from it? I know it seems obvious, but when we get caught up in you know, attachment to how we feel and how we want to feel, we can uh, miss what's obvious. So we're at chapter six, new perspectives in Jungian clinical practice. So, there's a quote here from Sonu Shamdazani. The individual is a gateway. The issue is not simply solving individual neuroses, individual suffering, but dealing with those aspects where the individual suffering intersects, coheres, is in direct connection with collective problems. But ultimately, right, we are on earth together. We came here with a group of souls, to experience it with a group of souls. And in a sense, it's a simulation, right? So and it, the hero's journey is often a format by which it follows in stories, because our life is like a story, right? So, and we're, we're not really ever alone, even if we seem like we're alone and certainly I mean, the cells in our body, do they have souls? If that's the case, are we alone? First density, one, 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 no, first density objects, beings that are in objects, essentially, like a table or a stone. Like, if you're on an island on your own, well, you've got stones for company. <laughs> That's really encouraging, isn't it? Yeah, you've got stones for company. Great. But uh, that's one way of looking at it. James Hillman dedicates the chapter, The Pandemonium of Images, of his book, Healing Fiction, 1983, to the Jungian method of psychotherapy. The name of this chapter summarizes the Jungian method, a constant confrontation with figures of the unconscious, a powerful technique based, in, based on the method of active imagination that Jung developed while writing Liber Novus. Hillman mentions, page 53, that Jung gave a distinct response to our culture's most persistent psychological need, from Oedipus to Socrates, through Hamlet and Faust, Faust, know thyself. And so we seem to understand the basic principle of look within before you look outside. And that the outside reflects the inside, in a sense, whether consciously or not. In fact, the major emphasis of the Red Book is the role played by its characters in Jung's personal myth, 
and their meaning in his individuation process. However, the book also presents new perspectives for a revolutionary type of clinical practice. Liber Novus in its entirety can, you know, I, I just realized, um, well, I mean, this is sixth episode in on uh, chapter six. That wasn't planned. <laughs> it just turned out that way. Yeah, so, uh, Nibonobis in its entirety can be seen as a sort of self-analysis by the author who was searching for understanding during a time of significant transition in which he is the patient, the method, and also his own analyst. The transcendent function and active imagination. The theory of some central aspects of clinical practice was developed by Jung in his text, The Transcendent, Transcendent Transcendent Function, a revolutionary essay that, it, that is now considered one of the most fundamental pieces of, of work. One of his most fundamental pieces of work, written in 1917, around the same time as the Red Book, it was highly influenced by Jung's experiences at the time. The essay has such striking character that the author was reluctant to publish it as he was concerned that it would be misunderstood. The fate of this essay was similar to that of the Red Book, which was kept out of the public realm until the, some students of the C.G. Ewing Institute in Zurich discovered it by accident in 1958, leading to its publication. Although was it really an accident? I believe that the transcendent function has an enormous importance among Jung's collected works, as it discusses the spontaneous production of symbols by the unconscious coherently and in a way that is theoretically valid. The transcendent function is in no way related to the four functions that Jung later developed in his work on the psychological types. It is related to the spontaneous production of a third element out of the tension of opposing factors, which maintains both conscious and unconscious value. This third element, which he named a tertium quid non datur, from the Latin, Latin, a third possibility that cannot be classified according to the two previous possibilities, is a symbolic image that indicates a creative way out from some of the tension of opposites inherent in psychological conflict. So what comes to mind here is that just a general idea that you've got this conflict internally and that's generally a conflict of opposites, I would say, that how it works. I don't know that, that's my impression. And that find a way out that is either a third alternative or integrates aspects of those two. I mean, generally that's how it's resolved. I would say a conflict is resolved by a sort of integration of the opposite, of features of the opposites. And this can be applied to anything. Any issue where there are conflicts internally or externally, integrate aspects together that seem incompatible in a way that's new. That is fundamentally what creativity is about, isn't it? So creativity is necessary to, to grow, develop, to, and to overcome internal psychological crises as well as crises in society as a whole. So, yes, and I mean, for example, politics, you know, left and right, as one example, what transcends, how can we transcend that? Not by balancing them, but by taking features and looking at what goes beyond it. And the same goes with any, anything in society or economics or whatever, any opposite, whether this is opposition, between them, going into this new age, we need to look for a way to integrate them together and unify. So, 
Some saw in these complex ideas an important influence by the philosopher Frederick Hegel, whose philosophical proposal on the dynamics of history was based on the opposition between a thesis and an antithesis, leading to a synthesis. This new synthesis, synthesis would then act as a new thesis on a higher level and so on. The production of symbols by the unconscious demonstrates the creativity of the self and the ability of the central archetype to construct new pathways. The symbolism is independent of conscious will and reveals our organization, organizing function of the self. Depending on which symbols come up, I guess. This theory that defines a creative aspect in the unconscious through the production of symbols was completely revolutionary. Freud once commented that there were great wounds in humanity's narcissism, 1916 to 1917. The first was Copernicus's theory of heliocentricity, demonstrating that the earth was not the center of the universe. The second was Darwin's theory of evolution, showing that man was not directly created in the image of God, but evolved from the higher anthropoids. And the third was the theory of psychoanalysis, which revealed that man was not in control of his own behavior. Although this claim may be true, as a systematic exploration of the unconscious was indeed revolutionary, he always described the id, his new structure, structure of the unconscious, as a completely disorganized bundle of drives without direction. The psyche would be organized by the ego, which is essentially so that the individual can live a healthy and balanced life. Quote, where the id was, there shall ego be, was his motto for psychological progress. Jung had to demonstrate the, pro the presence of the center of totality with its consciousness and unconscious process, with its conscious and unconscious process, representing the self with its capacity to organize the totality of the psyche and give direction to the process of individuation through symbolic production. This was Jung's fundamental contribution to the findings of psychoanalysis. psychoanalysis. He demonstrated this symbolic activity of the self through this transcendent function with his systemic study of a series of dreams and fantasies. These images will always point the way, will always have a purpose and end that is completely removed from the subject's consciousness. The transcendent function manifests through vivid symbols and indicate new pathways. These symbols of objects, characters, animals, and situations should be approached as though they have an objective reality. I mean, this is uh, distinctly different from Freud's. Um, perhaps Jung had more courage to look into the unconscious because it's quite it doesn't neatly fit into rational preconceptions. Um, and Freud, I might be judging here, but Freud seemed to have a perception that everything must form into, um, but he was very much in his ego, right? And he didn't like the, um, he was very much a materialist as well, so. Here we see a difference. And Jung seemed to see the psyche in a much more holistic way. This is a fundamental process in the psychological transformation of the dreamer. This intense imaginative process during the writing of Liber Novus was the start of Jung's active imagination technique. The Red Book itself can be seen as a continuous process of active imagination, as it involves a dialectic confrontation with a large variety of internal characters and a polyphony of subjective dialogues. Jung's basic postulate is at work here. Autonomous emotions have a lot of power over the ego, possessing it and exerting a lot of disassociative power over the conscious. When these emotions are personified, the conscious can enter a dialogue with them. And it is through this dialectic posture that content can be better integrated. This is the essence of the therapeutic value 
of psychological personification. One of the central postulates of analytic psychology and an essential element in Liber Novus. So, I wonder, I wonder how you've done this. Oops. Um, so do we emulate him or do we get analytic psychologists? I mean, I'm not sure how accessible they are. It might be worth trying out some of his methods. So, identify cut see if we can identify a character from our subconscious and interact with them like they're a real person and note down what you get i suppose perhaps uh, i could do that journal it or something The personification of psychic content can be found throughout the book, which encourages the integration of energy previously belonging to the unconscious. And of course, conscious and unconscious represents the units of opposites and naturally integrating conscious and unconscious content is going to be helpful. There is a gradual personification of the so-called spirit of the depths, for example, which initially manifests as an impersonal voice, then as Elijah, a wise prophet from the Old Testament, and later as a central guide of the book, the wise Gnostic character Philemon, who personifies the wise old man archetype, the principal reflection and guide of the conscious. The gradual personification of the archetype of the spirit in Liber Novus is discussed in more detail in chapter nine. As these personifications occur, the ego's dialogues with them become more intense and an, appro and an appropriation of the energy of this content becomes possible. This is not identification, which is radically different. This is ultimately leads to a transformation of the conscious personality. It's not identification. Of course, identifying isn't the same as identification, but yeah. And that's, uh, that, that's important. If we look at this and we identify it as your own, as opposed to just something you're encountering in there, the subconscious that is, then that might not be as healthy. Carefully observing the statements made in the transcendent, transcendent function, Jung, 1958, it is possible to see suggestions of therapeutic approaches based entirely on the author's personal experience. When Jung mentions that the transcendent function is a psychological function that brings together conceptual aspects and the ascetic of the psyche, he affirms something I have I consider to be central to psychotherapy. This essential discovery is a theoretic basis for the great value that expressive techniques have gained in Jungian therapy. Though this important insight that psychic life unfolds into two fundamental aspects, one conceptual and the other aesthetic, Jung opens up the, the opportunity for reflection on a matter that has huge clinical importance. Indeed, the psychological symbol is predominantly aesthetic as it comes to us in the form of an image, which has a conceptual core with a polysemy of meanings. When in Liber Novus, the author makes use of aesthetic, imagine, imagistic, imagistic language through its characters, symbols, experiences, and various expressions to expand on a series of theoretical concepts, he is establishing a theoretical approach in which the aesthetic category of representation has an important role. Hmm.
would the conceptual aesthetic distinction represent intuition and, and sensing, intuitive and sensing? Maybe, but both represent images, so I'm not sure, or imagistic. The four verbs. The confrontation within images takes place according to the four verbs or stages according to Jung. One, empty. The mind is emptied of everyday content so that new images can appear spontaneously from the unconscious. Or Buddha speak of emptying the mind, so maybe that helps. And that's going to line up. Two, let go. The conscious suspends its interference of arising images as they follow their own course. They are free to present their own discourse, independent of the conscious mind. Three, in, impregnate. Provided with adequate psychological space, images grow, acquire density, and take up a significant presence in the conscious mind. Four, confront ethically. Only now can the conscious mind act, taking an ethical position in relation to the unconscious, other. This final step is necessary and essential, as otherwise states of possession or identification with internal images can occur. The process of confrontation with internal images was an essential process in the creation of the Red Book, and Jung names it active imagination. Hmm. It's one of these things where I see gold and I, I don't know what to say about it other than reading it. Hmm. Maybe it's how I'm feeling right now, I don't know. Possibilities of symbolic integration. Just discussing the relationships between individuals and their unconscious images during the process of active imagination, Jung also distinguishes four distinct types of people, the visual type, the auditory type that can hear their inner voices, those who express unconscious material with their hands, and the rarest category, the motor sensory type, who are able to express their unconscious through the movements of their body and dance. An unusual process used to access the unconscious is also cited called automatic writing, where notes are written directly onto a clipboard. Yeah, I have tried that. Um, anyone can do it, actually. Um, it's worth trying, I think. There is a wide range of creative possibilities available to confront the unconscious, which have been developed in various ways by many different schools of modern therapy. These different ways of circling psychic images, gradually integrating and processing them on every individual's personal journey, make up a wide and varied model of therapy that was revolutionary for the age in which it arose, 1917. Let us explore each of these possibilities in more detail. Firstly, for the visual type, it is vital that the image, its intrinsic mystery, and its element of the unknown are respected, as it originates from the other of the collective unconscious. The representation that spontaneously emerges from the unconscious must be respected in its original form, regardless of conscious will. Individuals who are highly visual should wait for the image to form in their mind and note how it appears without interpreting it. Concepts formed by the ego at this time will only inhabit the spontaneous manifestation of this of this personal material. Yeah, I would I have experienced myself where an image has come up and I've interfered with it. So hmm. with the auditory type which is much less common than the former, the unconscious manifests through a voice, phrase, or seemingly irrational command. Jung recalls the familiar voices that are frequently observed in serious mental disorders, known as phenomes, considered by traditional psychiatry to be typical of psychosis, 1958. The fundamental difference between psychosis and the creative confrontation 
with the unconscious is the presence not of literalization, which is the way in which a mentally ill individual believes that the voice to be real and responds to it as a command that must be obeyed at any price. When assumed to be purely symbolic, the voice is seen as a symbol and the, the content of which is said as something unfamiliar and complex that cannot be immediately understood. The symbolic content of the message is seen from the beginning as a mystery to be gradually solved. Perhaps life is a mystery to be gradually solved. Perhaps life is symbolic. Jung had an auditory experience while he was writing his second black book. Recording his experiences, Jung reports having clearly heard the voice of a woman saying, what you do is not science, it is art. Jung told how he immediately became intensely worried with what the voice had said. He wanted to maintain the scientific integrity of his method at any cost. And in the end, he found an intuitive response to what that voice had said, answering, no, what I do is nature. 1963, page 178. I wonder if... Um, It was a psychic communication he received, but I have no way to really tell. Jung's active imagination demonstrates a way in which relating to unconscious material is taken seriously. The challenging female voice represents his inner need to create a new method that will bring together conceptual science and aesthetic artistic elements. The creative insight that Jung had with his concept of the transcendent function is his way of bringing these two aspects together. Okay, science and art brought together. That makes sense. The art science op opposition is valid just for the natural sciences, biology, physics, and chemistry. Analytical psychology and psychoanalysis analysis are, not the si are not sciences, despite repeated affirmations from Freud and Jung uh, that they are. So it seems that that voice he heard was helpful because while he didn't take it literally, in a sense, perhaps he wasn't uh, supposed to. And his creative solution to what that posed him was something that aligned with the truth of both. If you consider hermetics, hermetics is, it is what science is and it is what art is at the same time. And Jung was seeking to, Jung was seeking to, and spoke of, and the Red Book, he, he spoke about integrating opposites and in previous episodes, you know, we've been dealt with um, the issue of there's the material and then there's the immaterial, right? There's the Aramon consciousness and the Lucifer consciousness. There's and they could be integrated together for the Christ consciousness. And now I'm not going to say that Jung was had in mind the Christ consciousness. Although noting, it, it, we must note that his idea of the self, when Jung looked, analyzed the idea of the self and looked into archetypes and the self archetype, its idea of like, it's like a child that is simultaneously God. And in a sense, right in mythology and stuff and like christ fits that and the the self is also when an integration of the overall psyche and the unison of opposites is achieved the self which is in some ways akin to the soul is achieved or found through exploration and integration of the shadow and if that connects symbolically with God, and he looked into Gnosticism heavily, which has a lot of links to Law of One, in what it talks about, it has similarity for sure. 
So that's, to me, that aligns. To me, that selfie found, the self he wrote about, is the soul in panpsychism or pantheism and Gnosticism. And it symbolically is also represents God and Christ and aligns with the Christ consciousness as the solution to other being too materialistic or too symbolic and aligns with the distinction and the unit the opposites that need to be unified between art and science. It all aligns, it all synchronistically is connected. And Jung's answer, no, it is nature, aligns with all that and with, well, I'm thinking heuristics, that's not the word. Um, um, I don't know why I've got heuristics in my head now. Uh, hermetics, that's it. <laughs> Hopefully you could follow that. But their interpretation here of this as well, it's not invalid. That's, the, that's a legitimate interpretation as well. There are, there are the, these are the knowledge of a newly emerging paradigm. Strictly speaking, the sciences include everything that is tested in a laboratory that is subject to repetition, uh, hypothesis even, hypothesis and prognosis. Freud's and Jung's depth psychology, which works with the unconscious, cannot be included in this category. The art-science dichotomy can be relativized by Thomas Kuhn's notion of the transition of paradigms. 1962. In the same way, the whole of Liber Novus reconciles both the conceptual and the aesthetic aspects of the psyche. Individual, individuals capable of artistic expression are more common than may be expected. Perhaps as a result of cultural influences or family pressure, people often tend to abandon their genuine artistic capabilities. Jung held this form of personal expression in, uh, in high esteem. Perhaps since his own childhood, since his own childhood, his hands had been a fundamental role in the expression of his fantasies. It is true that this happens to be a certain, to a certain extent, with all children, as they play in a more physical and artistic way than adults do. Artists are important, an important exception to this rule, and bring their contact with the polymorphous creative child to their adult lives. Children express their fantasies with their hands through bricolage, a huge range of seemingly endless drawings and games. The, the games that Jung played as a child, his small toy that he sculpted into a school case with whom he would talk his, in his childhood fantasies, seemed to have carried through his, into his sculptures, drawings and paintings as an adult. During his stay in Paris in 1901 and 1902, Jung tried his hand at being a painter, creating a range of rather expressive landscapes. These paintings can be seen in Jaffa, Jaffa, 1979. The paintings in Liber Nobis demonstrate this continuous integration between the verbal and the nonverbal. It is also not surprising that Jung sought to add the aesthetic emphasis to his therapeutic approach. Without a doubt, he was one of the great pioneers of nonverbal strategies in psychotherapy. Yeah, and you can see the fact that he kept on doing art and kept his creativity going actively for a long time. And I feel that that, that may well explain, partly explain the, the vision that he had, because we often, adults often lose that. I mean, some adults regain it, but it was often lost. And that, that's sad, right? And um, McKenna, um, who took hallucinogens and noted down the results, and he, he said the same thing that 
children will see things for what they are, as they are, adults put all these labels on it because we get this imbalance cognitively with our hemispheres and our just psychological tendencies really as adults in this society anyway. The way children are in a way reflects more human nature. And it's funny how this is something often denigrated. Of course, I'm not the only one saying this, um, but yeah. Emphasizing the pioneering role that Jung had naturally expressed therapeutic strategies does not mean that he was not the only, does not mean he was the only one to have developed these. Others have made a decisive contribution to the development of an aesthetic perspective in therapy, such as therapeutic artist Margareth Naumberg and the psychoanalyst Ernst Chris, among others. The Swiss Jungian psychoanalyst Dora Kauf was an important proponent of the aesthetic method in therapy with her sand tray technique. In, in Brazil, Nisa de da Silveira, 1980, made an original and important contribution to the aesthetic method with psychotic patients in, the la in large hospitals. These are just some examples of nonverbal techniques that are widely, widely used by a range of Jungian therapists. Among the nonverbal methods, the motor sensory type of active imagination has been explored further in more recent times. Gesture and movements are ways of expressing inner processes. Chadral, 1986, mentions the fact that on at least one known occasion, Jung and this method of active imagination using expressive movements. He encouraged one of his patients who had started to draw a mandala to finish it through the medium of dance. The use of movements in Jungian therapy There you go. Interpretive dance is actually quite useful for psychology. Who would have thought? It's well known. After graduating in dance, Mary Whitehouse studied in the at the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich and qualified as a Jungian analyst. She then sought to integrate expressive movement into Jungian analysis and created a therapeutic approach, approach called the called authentic movement. Joan. Trudderol and Jeanette Adler were both important figures in the development of the School of Authentic Movement. This therapy uses a type of active imagination in which the unconscious content is expressed directly through movement. The body and its gestures are spontaneous means through which symbols manifest in therapy. Trudderol, 1986 and 2008. I wonder, I thought of this as I was reading it, there is an episode, an interview I did um, with a composer who um, developed a technique called um, Takatina. Um, I think the episode is called Takatina. I would, I'm wondering if that could be combined with this, maybe not, but this movement, I mean, it, it does seem to suggest that it is it can help people heal in a sense. So I wonder if um, there may be a connection there or a way it can be made connected and they could be applied together. I don't know, just an idea. Jung's proposals for a new type of psychotherapy in the Red Book are more in the area of active imagination and the expressive techniques. This is the process that was referred to as non-talking cure in chapter four, in contrast to Anna O's talking cure. These creative pathways free up analysis from the classical approach. These creative pathways free up analysis, oh, I already said that, <laughs> which although useful in some cases is losing ground to creative solutions that are less rigid, but at the same time, less consistent, still consistent. These approaches are more appropriate than the modern individual who lives in a fast paced life for the modern individual who lives in a fast-paced life and has more urgent demands. Financial issues, lack of time, and multiple forms of communication through the internet have overtaken more rigid models 
of five consultations per week on the couch. Yeah, typically it's more like once a week. Five consultations per week. I, you see, I had no idea that is the norm, right? When I've had a psychologist, it's generally once a week. As opposed to a more intensive met, um, about, no, you know, series of consultations, which perhaps is more effective. Makes sense. Transference and active imagination. The process described by Freud that he called transference from German Übertragung means to transport or take from one place to another. This is, is the phenomenon by which elements of from childhood expectations and varied experiences are projected onto the analyst. The therapeutic setting acts as a way of repeating past situations that have been repressed in the unconscious. The basic process is a very important and central to any therapeutic experience. The patient unwittingly re-edits the issues retaining, retained in his unconscious, which enables him to resolve these through careful interpretation-based analysis. That makes sense, I don't know what else to say. Jungian analysis has its own understanding of transference, which in which it also contains personal aspects of unintegrated childhood experiences, but is also an important vehicle for archetypal experiences from the collective unconscious as part of the individuation process. In addition, through transference and counter-transference processes have always received a lot of attention in therapy. It should not have forgotten that human relations, human relations processes also occur Harry Passu. The client and therapist are both present as individuals, each with their own values, memories, and preferences. It is important to recognize that these processes exist without allowing the analytic, analytic process to be compromised. So, I mean, there's again a unison of opposites there. Jung emphasized that if the analyst does not at least like this does not like at least one aspect of his client, he is incapable of treating him. The Jungian analyst Mario Jacobi expanded on the issues of his book, The Analytic Encounter, 1984. Lieber is the basis for all Jung's theoretic constructions on the individuation process and its fundamental stages. The, the various characters that emerge in the imaginary encounters in the book led Jung to systemize a process for the development of the personality based on a dialectic with inner figures that he named the persona, the shadow, the anima, the animus, the manner personality, and the self. These stages were theoretically elaborated at the end of a period of the confrontation with which the unconscious in the essay, the relations between the ego and the unconscious, Jung, 1928. The various characters representing specific moments in this process that also appear in an individual's transference, lending it more color. The therapeutic setting can therefore be seen as a therapeutic vase containing the images of transformation that are part of the trans, a part of the psychological process where each patient writes his own red book. Let us cite clinical, a clinical example in order to better understand how how an archetypal configuration can appear as part of the transference. Once I received a call from someone who had been referred to me by a friend. She had not had any previous contact with me and I did not have time to see her immediately. She had to wake a week for a first con consultation. During this wait, she had a dream and told me about what she told me about at the beginning of her analysis. I was in an unfamiliar open field. I discovered a slope and went down it into a wide cave. Spurred on by my curiosity, I started to explore the inside of the cavern, which went on and on like a huge labyrinth. In the middle of this huge labyrinth, there was an old bald man surrounded by a group of people. I thought, it's my analyst. And I waited for my turn to be seen. Well, my first thoughts, I thought of wide cave is that was the shadow, the unconscious. I mean, caves are shadowy. <laughs> Maybe it's not that straightforward. Um, this is the type of dream that Jung named the initial dream, which would turn out to have an interesting meaning for the whole process that was to follow. This prophetic aspect is perhaps due to the fact that this was the first 
therapeutic session in which the projections, in which projections and resistance can take place on both sides, those of the client and the analyst, as the latter also has his own transference and unconscious resistance towards the patient. In these conditions, the unconscious appears clearly and some of the anticipatory aspects of the symbols can be felt. The unconscious is timeless and in certain situations can present anticipatory aspects of the therapeutic process. And of course, the fact that she experienced that is synchronicity. This dream contains archetypal aspects, the grotto in the form of a labyrinth, and an element present in old initiations and a symbol of the unconscious, and the important symbol of the wise old man archetype. The analyst appears as a wise old man surrounded by his followers or patients, and the client must patiently wait her turn. Client, yeah. This is also an example of transference of idealization, as the analyst, who at the time is completely unknown to the patient, appears surrounded by manner, a mysterious force and power. The strong transference of idealization has both positive and negative effects on the process. It is positive as it is shown, as is shown by the patient's emotional investment and her desire to explore the labyrinth, her own unconscious, reveals her openness and interest to the analytical process, analytic process. It also shows the extent to which she trusts the analyst and the process that she is about to start. However, the analyst is taking on a role of the wise old man who holds all the power to cure and transformation is a negative aspect. This projection of an archetypal image leads to problems associated with the omnipotence of the analyst. He feels that he is the master of cure and attributed magical powers by his patient and the infantilization of the patient who becomes highly dependent on her or his analyst. This turn these turn into the so-called interminable analyses, which, in which the patient is incapable of getting in touch with the image of the wise old man within herself. This is because the wise old man archetype belongs to the collective unconscious and not exclusively to the analyst. So it's externalized, right? Wanted analyst or projected. It is an unconscious aspect of the patient herself that she needs to recover. Indeed, it represents the power of reflection from the Latin reflectere, meaning to turn backwards, and the ability to discover creative ways out of existential problems. So this, uh, in life, we, we encounter people, perhaps even situations, and how we see them, consciously or not, is of course archetypal. And this of course applies to me as well. The way I interpret things as archetypal aspects, the way you interpret things as archetypal aspects. But if you look up what the archetypes are and then in a sort of detached way, look at how you interpret certain things in your life, especially if it's emotionally important to you in some way, and consider which archetypes are coming off, especially if it's negative experiences, you can look at that and be like, what does that represent? What archetype is that? See if you can see the collective unconscious projected from you in how you interpret events and people. So, like what, what is it you dislike in others or what is it who do you look up to? Why do you look up to them? Who, what are your role models? Why, you know, who are your role models and why? You know, what situations do you fear to be involved in? And more like, we, we come across, it's described in this book and elsewhere, like these situations, right? But you have situations in life that you can psychoanalyze yourself in a sense. Now you might not be qualified for that, but that doesn't mean you can't consider what archetypes you're reflecting in, in a detached way and consider like what aspect of the collective unconscious or your personal unconscious might be reflected in your interaction with this other person. Like for example, 
I mean, if someone didn't like overly, if they didn't like things being too intellectual, if intellectuals pissed them off, right? And oh, they're snooty, they're elitist on their high horse, like they overcomplicate things. And you're like, it's simple, like the core facts, right? And like, for example, right? Maybe the scholar or archetype or perhaps even the wise old man might be something you're not accepting within yourself. I don't know. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just saying like, that's an example of how you could do it. And what feels right to you as the answer? If it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't, right? Feel, sense, intuit. Especially if it's emotionally, if you're emotionally invested in it one way or the other, like positively, negatively, whatever that means, you know. Intuit the answer. What's the first thing that comes to you? First thing. Maybe you could try, oh, I'll just sketch something, as it means, or I'll draw something or do some dance. It doesn't have to be Whatever way of doing it works for you, but your intuition is powerful. And what comes to you about it? Not what, what do you think of? That's your left brain just pretending to be the right brain or whatever, right? What comes to you? Don't try to work it out. Ask yourself, what? What archetype is this? And the first thing come to mind might be the scholar or something like that, or, you know, the fool, whatever. It, if it comes to your head like, like that, it's that. And if you ask, well, what proof do you have? Well, that would suggest you don't want to listen to your intuition, which um, is a legitimate choice. Free will, after all. Okay, where was I? <laughs> um, the mythological and archetypal themes of this transferential fantasy can also be observed in Jung's fantasies during the writing of Liber Novus. The theme of descent in the chapter Descent into Hell in the Near Future, in Libra Primus, and the encounter with the wise old man archetype, Elijah and later Philemon. These fantasies brought about the theoretical construct of the individuation process that reappears in therapy in the symbolic material expressed in the transference. I've also observed the frequent appearance of the wise old man archetype at the start of the process in dreams and transferential experiences. In another clinical example, the patient had an initial dream in which she saw herself walking through the neighborhood of Ipanema in Rio de Janeiro, when she saw an old man watching her for a window in a building. She looked wise and a little like her grandfather, who was a dominant who was a dominant personality in the family and was much loved and respected. At the same time, the old man vaguely reminded her of me. That is you. In this, I probably didn't need to say that, did I? Sorry. <laughs> uh, in this example, there are elements of transference presence. Why does this image of the wise old man appear so often at the beginning of therapy? Shouldn't this archetype, which is intimately linked to the self, be dominant during the latter stage of analysis, latter phases of analysis? My hypothesis is that patients seeking therapy are immersed in a compulsion to repetition, as Freud called it, which is the essence of neurosis. They are passing through a, a time of reflection, thinking about their lives and their need to seek help and change. At the same time, the patient is under the unconscious influence of the wise old man archetype or the principle of reflection. This is why he frequently manifests in dreams and fantasies. Hmm. There's a lot for me to consider in this. Well, for everyone. Hmm. 
Another aspect of this archetype, and this is valid for all archetypes, is that he isn't situated in the transcendental realm outside everyday experience. In the majority of families, there are striking figures that organize the family group and do serve as an example are admired and revered. This is generally a grandfather or grandmother figure who leaves a significant mark on the history of the family. When such a person dies, the absence of the numinous catalyzing force of the wise old man or wise old woman is strongly felt. The structure of the family disintegrates and divorce and other radical changes start to take place. The cohesion of the group as a whole is threatened as the integrating power of the symbol is no longer an influence over the family unconscious, on the family unconscious. The clinical pathway and the symbolic pathway. Oh, actually, take us back. This, I had a thought that this applies to society as well. So if you've seen previous episodes or heard them, you might remember that I was talking about the spirit of the times and the leaders that we look up to, or rather the celebrities or celebrities and leaders, and those we look up to in a society. And what happens when they fall, literally or symbolically, where people no longer look up to them. They, as a symbol, die. Not literally, but they cease to be the symbol that they were by one way or another. And that increasingly has happened with the Me Too movement, that, that, that was part of it. And what happens is dramatic change. And there might be some who try to direct the flow of that change, but fundamentally change is chaotic and unpredictable. So these are the times we live in. Who knows what will happen? Source, I imagine. It depends on which source you mean. Anyway. Hmm, where was I? The clinical pathway and the symbolic pathway. The clinical examples reveal an important element, the union and interdependence of analysis and transference and the analysis of archetypal figures. In the past, there was a false dichotomy between the symbolic method and the clinical method, leading to the opinion that Jungian analysis, analysts interpreted dreams and symbols were Freudian why Freudian analysts were more interested in transference. The interpretation is incorrect, as I've already and already seen as outdated. The symbolic and the clinical can, be, can exist side by side, with the archetypal figures of the individuation process existing within the clinical context. Jung's personal experience, while he was writing Liber Novus, led him to develop a profoundly personal approach in the to the therapeutic process that avoided formulas, rigid theories, and general rules applicable in all cases. This personal perspective has, had already led Jung to suggest to Freud that didactic, didactic analysis should be mandatory for all students of psychoanalysis, and that only those who have confronted their own unconscious are fit to be analysts. He also emphasized that the analyst can only Take the analysis sand, take the analysis, analysis sand, I don't know what the word means, but to the places he has previously been, to where he has previously been. Okay, let me read that again. He also emphasized that the analyst can only take the analyze, analyst, I think maybe analyze, or maybe it's actually a word I don't recognize, the analyze sand to where he has previously been. This, this statement was far from the classical vision of the distant analyst who was not involved in the opus of their client. Each analyst is a new challenge. Each analysis even. Each analysis is a new challenge. There was no monotony in the interpretation as general theories are just have just relative value. With the intense experience of his own unconscious that, let, that he expressed in the Red Book, Jung invites us to write our own red book and to confront our own images. 
and yeah i'm going to do that i advise it too i mean instead of there or oh, it's page 66 as well well i mean it was edited i don't know it might be synchronicity well at the end of the chapter and i was starting to make more mistakes reading out so i can tell it's time for me to stop maybe i'll just do it chapter at a time no 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 i'll just do it intuitively and then it'll be what it'll be um if you're wondering the next chapter is the legacy of the dead interestingly he did have a vision where he was talking to the dead i discussed it in the last episode yeah so i hope you enjoyed it's pretty interesting and um bye for now